All right, if you want to go ahead and make your way back to your seats. You can open your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Continuing to work our way through uh, Luke's Gospel, heading towards uh, Resurrection Sunday. And so, like I already shared with you, is at the beginning of the year, I kind of planned out and looked through our services and the sermons that were left and the amount of passages and the what they call a pericope, you know, a section of Scripture, and broke them all down and plugged them into the calendar and realized that we were going to be talking about the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so I said, yep, that's the plan. This is, that's what we're going to be doing. So, um, so today we're going to be, um, in Luke 22, verse 35, 35 through 46 story. That's probably very familiar for many of us. And that is, uh, Jesus as he's praying in, uh, the garden of Gethsemane, but, uh, Luke has a few sort of interesting little additions, um, and his, his focus is a little, just a little bit different. So, um, we'll see that tonight. So starting in verse 35, it says, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no, uh, no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, his knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they, and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father God, again, we pray and we thank you um, for this day. We thank you for a chance to gather together as your people, um, to hear your word, to sing your praises, um, God, to share in your ordinances. Um, Father, we, as we often do, we pray for revival in our community. Father, we pray that your spirit would be poured out in a, in a specific way, um, in a unique way, in a way where the hearts of the saved are stirred up and emboldened, God, and that you would call, it would be an awakening as well, not just a revival, but an awakening where you would, um, where you would call both uh, those who already know your son, Jesus Christ, to greater faithfulness and that you would open the eyes of the lost and that they would see uh, who Jesus Christ is, that they would recognize their own sin and be saved. God, we, we pray for revival in our community and we hear um, reports even, even this week uh, in Asbury, Kentucky of, of 
something going on. Um, God, we pray that it is a true movement of your spirit um, where you are doing exactly the things that we are talking about. God, that you are showing people their sin and calling them to repentance. God, that you are showing people your son, Jesus Christ, and calling them to faith. God, that you are reconciling um, believers and that you are um, calling people to greater faithfulness. God, we ask that you, um, we pray that you would do this in our community and we pray that, that the, the things that are going on there, um, are true and that you are doing a great work, um, even there at that, at Asbury University. And so, um, God, we want to see that in our own churches. We want to see that in our own community. Uh, we want to see you work and move, uh, and God, draw people to yourself. So I pray for the churches of Blount County. And I pray that this Sunday, as as your word went forth in uh, gospel faithful pulpits, God, that you will use that um, this day throughout the week, God, that those words that were spoken will be a seed that was planted in people's hearts and that it will begin to germinate and and grow and put down roots and sprout forth, God, eventually growing and bearing fruit. 30, 60, 100 times uh, what was sown. Father, we ask that in our own hearts. We ask that in our own families. We ask that in this congregation, and we ask it throughout our community. Um, God, we thank you. We know that you do these things through your word. We, we, you work through the spirit, um, your spirit working through your word, and so we ask that you would do that um, tonight as we study together. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, we are continuing on in in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been a Christian for a while, you are probably uh, fairly familiar with this account that we come to of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. The incident is probably one of the um, most well-known maybe scenes, you could say, in the gospel accounts. And so probably I think the case would be is that if I asked um, anyone who 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 was fairly well um, versed in the scriptures, you could kind of tell me the major themes and sort of some of the general points of application that we see when we come to this passage, because um, it's there's a there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in it. We see Jesus in anguish um, because he knows what's coming. Um, he understands uh, the the full-orbed torture that he will endure over the next 12 or 15 hours. The the physical, the mental, the emotional, the interpersonal, and primarily the spiritual um, suffering that he will have to endure um, on on what we call Good Friday. Um, The Gethsemane scene, and, and Gethsemane is this garden, right? It is this there's an olive orchard there. You can still go to it. It's a fascinating place. India and I have gotten to go to it. And there are there are olive trees in that garden that are, um, you know, going on 2,000 years old. I don't know that there are any that actually they believe go all the way back to, to the, the time of Christ. But olive trees are crazy because they last forever. Like they, they as long as they're healthy and have, have the nutrients they need, they just keep on going. And so... But there is this garden there, and you can still go to it. Um, there across the mountain, so you're standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you're looking out across the valley, and then there is the Temple Mount um, across from you. And so Jesus goes to, um, he's been staying a little further out um, 
uh, right before for this uh, Lord's Supper, the, the last supper that he has. Um, but he's come down to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray with his disciples. And we see a lot of, men really cool stuff at this point. This is probably one of the the key passages that we go to, to, to meditate on and reflect on the humanity of Christ. All right. So when we talk about the nature of who Jesus is, that he is, that he is fully and truly God, that he is fully and truly man and how all those things come together in the incarnation. One of the places that we go to is here because we see Jesus humanity on display. Um, that he is just as you and I would be if we knew the kind of things that were coming. He is afraid. He is fearful of what's coming. And he's even eager to escape it if there is any other option, right? If there is any way that his mission can still be accomplished without having to go through the, the horrific things that are about to take place, he asks that God the Father would would make that possible, that he would allow that to happen. And yet at the same time, he knows and he prays, but not my will, but your will be done. If this is the only way, then that is the way that I want to go forward. And of course, we know that it is the only way, that there would be no way for mankind to be saved were it not um, for Jesus' um, suffering on the cross. And so, again, all that to say, the Gethsemane account particularly focuses on Jesus um, and, and, and some unique aspects of things that maybe, maybe we don't see in other places in the scripture, which is what makes Luke's account even more interesting in some ways, because Luke is unique in comparison to Matthew and Mark. John omits the story, um, altogether, but Matthew and Mark both have accounts of the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, but the focus is different. And so what's interesting is, is certainly Jesus is still the focus of the, this passage. Okay. But, but there's, there's, there's some different emphases here. In Luke's account, the emphasis is not only on Jesus directly, um, his fear, um, and, and prayers to God over the trials that are about to come. Um, but one of the other things that is emphasized here is Jesus worry for his disciples and the things that they were going to have to endure. Okay, and so Luke's gospel tends to have a dual focus where the other ones are are very seen. Jesus prayer and and suffering are at the center. There's more to this passage in a way. And so we see that in a couple different ways. One is is in Luke, he includes that verses 35 through 38, which is what we read at the beginning about, um, you know, when, when I sent you out before, did you lack anything? None of the other gospel writers include that section that changes the focus of this this section a little bit. Um, another thing is Matthew and Mark in, in both of those gospels, Jesus triple prayer is emphasized. And so probably, again, if you're familiar with those passages, Jesus goes and he prays to God. Will you take this cup from me if that is possible? And then, um, and then the disciples are sleeping and he goes back and prays again and the disciples are still sleeping. He goes back and prays again. Okay. There's this threefold prayer that we see both in Mark and Matthew, but we don't see that. In the Gospel of Luke, in Luke, Jesus' prayer to God is only mentioned one time, but in fact, his prayers for his disciples are mentioned twice, right? His prayer for them to pray so that they would avoid temptation is mentioned twice. And so there's, again, there's just a little bit of a different focus, it seems to be, that Luke is placing on the passage compared to Mark and Matthew. And maybe the larger point we could say is this, the events that take place over the next few hours Mark, in a way, 
the first shots fired, the declaration of open warfare against Christ and his kingdom, in a sense. Okay? So think of it kind of in these terms. By and large, there has been sort of a spiritual cold war going on up until this point. Jesus has been opposed by by uh, the, the world and, and the forces of evil, but perhaps not directly attacked, typically. They've attempted to discredit him in different ways, but they've not attempted to overthrow him. But from here on out, things will be distinctly different. And the disciples, Jesus is saying, need to be ready for that. They need to be ready for the fact that from this moment on, that that the forces that are out there that are aligned against them are going to be more in their face. Jesus' own actions of preparing for his own suffering are trying to teach the disciples about their future trials too. And so he begins by kind of shifting, um, announcing this shift that is going to take place. So we go back to verse 35 again. So he says, You remember when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. So this is Jesus referencing a passage that we've already read and studied back in Luke chapter 9. This is when Jesus has first uh, brought his disciples together, and now he has sent them out on these sort of evangelization missions on their own without Jesus. Jesus isn't going with them. He's sending these guys out in in pairs to, to, to do the work. And so in verse chapter 9, verse 9, it says, no, I take that back. Chapter 9, verse 1, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. And when wherever they do not receive you, When you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. All right. And so the picture is this. Jesus paints this picture back in Luke chapter nine, where he says, um, look, I'm sending you out and you will be provided for as you go out on this mission. As you go out, you don't need to worry about taking extra stuff and and being prepared, you know, sleep out in, in outside and and provide for your own food and stuff like that, because you're going to be provided for. Um, You're going to be received into these towns in general in a favorable way. Now, we know that's not every single time the case, but in general, that was the case. When they came to a town, they would heal. Um, There would be an accompanying message, and it would be received at face value, and the people would say, man, this is great. These guys are casting out demons. They're healing diseases. They're preaching this good news. Um, this is a good thing. Sure, just like Jesus predicts, some towns will not want them there. Some towns will reject them. But what do they do? No big deal. Dust the feet, uh, dust the dust off your feet as you leave out as a testimony against that town. And what's going to happen? You're going to go to the next town and somebody there is going to take you in and provide for you. Okay. Um, Jesus is saying though, that's not the case anymore. All right. You shouldn't expect that to happen from here on out. So verse 36, he says, but now that's what I told you before, but now let the one who has a money bag, take it. And likewise, a knapsack. 
and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. From here on out, you need to go about the mission of the church recognizing that you must be prepared for a world that is not going to aid you. Moreover, they're going to be against you in some ways. And then in fact, worse than that, what does he say in verse 37? For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, that he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, I and my followers after me are about to fulfill a prophecy that was spoken in Isaiah chapter 53. That's where that passage, and he was numbered with the transgressors. It comes from Isaiah 53, okay? If you, if you, you, you would probably remember Isaiah 53 as you started reading it, if you look back in your Bible, but it is probably, arguably, the most Christocentric, that is Christ-centered passage in the entire Old Testament, in my opinion, okay? Most blatantly pointing towards Jesus Christ. And along with maybe Psalm chapter 22, is probably the most crucio-centric passage, meaning cross-centered passage in the entire Old Testament. So when you go back and look at Isaiah 53, this, this passage omits all the other details of Christ's rejection, Christ's torture. He reminds us also that a piece of that is that he would be counted among the transgressors. Right? That's a specific word, a, a transgressor. It is someone who is going against, I get transgress, progress, you move forward, right? To transgress is to go across a line. There was a, there was a line there, a rule, a boundary, a law, a moral principle, and you are going over it, right? You're doing something that the law tells you not to do. And Jesus is saying, me, Christ and you, my disciples, you are going to be counted as people who are lawbreakers according to the world. For the Jews, they saw them as, as, um, blasphemous heretics, the Christians, right? For the Romans, they saw them as these, you know, ornery, rebellious, um, in fact, atheistic sect. They called them atheists because they wouldn't believe in all the myriad pantheon of gods that were out there. And so obviously, if the disciples had been listening for the last three years, they would know that their dreams of Jesus being this liberator king were never going to come to pass in the way that they thought. But now Jesus is even dashing their hopes even more. He's saying, I'm not even going to be like an honored teacher. You're not going to be able to go forward from this place saying, well, I follow the sect of Jesus. And people go, oh, Jesus, what a great teacher he was. That's not going to be the case. People are going to remember Jesus and count him as a transgressor, as someone who is irreligious, immoral in some way, lawbreakers. And again, these truths find themselves blatantly obvious immediately in the New Testament era. The Jews see the Christians as, as, as blasphemous. The Romans see them as rebellious. Now, obviously what we see is that in the course of church history, Constantine shows up and man, this is, I'm just painting with a really broad strokes right here. Okay. But Constantine shows up. Christianity becomes the official religion of the empire. Um, we had a nominally 
Christian consensus in some places at some times over the next two millennia with all kinds of different things going on. Okay, again, broad generalization. But in general in the West, Christianity was seen as a net good, right? It brought truth and goodness and and love and mercy into the surrounding world. But here's the deal, guys. And I think this is true of our of, of the situation that we live in now. We are living through, we are on the verge of a re-paganization of Western civilization. Okay? We are moving in our culture, in the consensus of, of Western culture, to a place where I believe Christianity will more consistently be seen by the culture and by the world as a negative, as an evil, okay? They won't look to the church and say, oh, man, you know, Christians, I don't believe in all the stuff they believe, but, man, they sure do a lot of good stuff. That won't be the the way the church is thought of. Unless something happens, unless revival happens, I think we are moving towards a place where people will say, no, the presence of Christianity in general is an oppressive, negative you know, and you can go through all the things, patriarchal, whatever kind of system. They should be seen as something that should be pushed away, excluded from society. It's a net negative on society, a net evil. I think we are moving to a place, again, outside of something changing in our culture, where we are once again going to be blatantly and obviously numbered among the transgressors. We are going to be seen as outliers with a negative effect on the world. Now, obviously, the the gospel calls us to live in a different way. It calls us to live in a way where our good works are seen to the extent that the person who calls us transgressors has to say, well, man, they're sure not living like transgressors, right? They sure um, are, are doing good things or whatever. That's our calling. But again, that doesn't preclude the fact that they will also be calling us transgressors in some way, right? People with closed minds, bigoted in their views about the exclusivity of Christ, bigoted about their refusal to accept unhindered, autonomous human action, particularly when it comes to sexual autonomy. So Jesus is warning his disciples, and he's warning, I think, us afresh, in the current situation that we find ourselves in. The world will be your enemy. They will not like the things, they will not agree with the things, and moreover, they will see you as evil, as transgressors, as lawbreakers. So he's warning, you guys are about to step into a war. That's what's going on. You're about to step into a war, disciples, and you need to be ready for it. But again, it's not a war of swords and bombs and things like that. The disciples take him literally, as they often do. And so what do they say? They're like, get ready for war. I got two swords sitting right here, Jesus. Let's go. Like, we are ready to go. Um, You say the word, and we will start this revolution, right? Right. if the, if the disciples were alive today, they would definitely be those people who were like stocking up on ammo and like water and MREs and stuff like that. Okay. They are ready for the revolution to take place. But Jesus immediately says, no, that's not what I'm, I'm not talking. You're, you're missing something here. 
Okay. And so that, that phrase is translated different in different passages where he says, they say, we got two swords sitting right here. And he says, it is enough. Or, um, some translations will say something basically like enough of that, right? That's not what I'm talking about. Don't, I, I don't need you to go find weapons in this moment. All right. The, the revolution that is about to happen is not this war that is about to happen, um, is, is a spiritual war. Right. It's a war against not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so Jesus exhortation here is. You have to be ready for the war. And so prepare accordingly for that. And what should we do? How should we prepare for this war? Well, the main thing he tells us is what? Pray. The main weapon that we have in this conflict that is coming, the trials and temptations that will arise with it, is prayer. So verse 39, he says, and he came out and he went as it was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and, they, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. The war will begin, and we will be attacked, and it will be prayer that protects us and equips us, first and foremost. And Jesus' concern is not just because they are sinners, Okay, so you might think about that. You might say, okay, well, the reason why he's calling into prayer is because these are a bunch of goofballs. Man, the disciples just keep on, they got all kinds of problems. They seem to mess up at more things than they, than they get right. And so, yeah, man, these guys need a lot of prayer and they need to be praying, but that's not the case. You want to know how we know? Because Jesus prays in this context. Okay. Jesus sees the conflict and the war and the torture and the difficulty, the trial and the tribulation and the temptation that is coming. And so Jesus models it for us. He doesn't only ask his disciples to pray and to prepare so that they can escape temptation, but then he demonstrates for them that same fact. Verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. All I can assume is that there are a million temptations going through Jesus' mind at that point. Again, in his humanity, he is being tempted and tried in every way, every voice that we can imagine, right, saying, man, just run, just get out of here. You can have a happy life somewhere else. There's got to be another way. Maybe we can raise an army. Maybe I don't have to die. Maybe, and all these things are going through. I don't know if I can do these. All these temptations are coming into um, Jesus' mind in his flesh, right? In his incarnation, in his humanity. He is being attacked by these things. And so what does he do? He says, I've got to pray. And so he goes before the father in prayer, asking these things. And what happens, verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly at that point. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Again, here's the deal. You know what our problem is? It's what I mentioned last week, too. Our problem is self-confidence. Our problem is thinking that we can handle this in some way. And the reality is we can't. 
that we can handle the war that is coming to us, the onslaught that is coming to us, the temptations that we can somehow handle on our own, that we can walk the line, that we can keep things together. And Jesus is saying, you can't. This struggle is beyond you in some ways. There's a, there's a famous poem by Rudyard Kipling called If. Do you know that poem? It's basically about manhood and it goes through this, all this stuff. And it's about if you can do this, then, then you'll be a man, my son. And there's this great line in it where he says, if you can keep your head while all about you are losing theirs, then you will be a man, my son. But somebody pithily came back and said, if you can keep your head while all about you are losing theirs, then you probably don't understand the situation. Okay. That's the disciples. The disciples are going, yeah, 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 I I get it. Temptation. Yeah, we understand temptation. It comes to everybody, right? But I think we're good. I think we can figure this thing out. And Jesus is sitting a stone's throw, throw away, recognizing the danger that they are involved in, recognizing the consequences of failure at this point, recognizing the force of Satan and his legions in that moment against them. And Jesus is praying for his life. Right. He is praying with everything he has. He is praying and the angels are showing up and ministering to him and strengthening him. And so then Jesus says, oh, well, good. I got that strengthening and now I don't need to pray anymore. Is that what he does? No. Even after he's strengthened by the angels, Jesus continues more earnestly in prayer. The, the, the Bible talks about this idea that he is praying and is such strain that the sweat is dripping like blood from his head. And, and, and one of two things is going on there. There is an actual medical condition where you can be under such great physical strain that the capillaries start, blood starts coming through them into your sweat glands and you start sweating blood. And that may be what's going on. Or it may just be saying this is, have you ever just like gashed your hand or something open and the blood is pouring out to where it's just like, it's almost like running off of you. Like, and that may be the picture there that Jesus is sweating so much that it's pouring off of him the way an open wound would pour off of you. So it's one of those two things. Uh, but the point is, is that he is in such turmoil and in such that he's, that he's praying so hard because he knows what is coming and the disciples seem to be completely oblivious to those things. Jesus understands the situation and the disciples, what are they doing? Well, they're asleep. Verse 45, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. That's a key phrase. Nobody else uses that. At least I don't think so. I didn't, I meant to go back and check that. So I may be wrong about that, but I think nobody else uses that phrase, sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. A second time he says this to them. The other gospels, again, simply mention that disciples fall asleep because of their heavy, heavy eyes. But this one says that he's sleeping for sorrow. Now we might read too deeply into that, but here's, here's what I think maybe that's partially indicating. I don't know about you, but when I'm stressed out or sorrowful over something, um, sometimes the main way that I want to deal with it is to go to bed, right? Man, I just want to go to bed and stop thinking about these things. And stop dealing about these things. To be honest, in a sense, it's probably the way many people use drugs and alcohol the same way, right? They say, I don't want to think about these things anymore. I don't want to feel anymore, so I'm going to medicate myself so that I cannot have to deal with this. God has given us sleep to rest us, but there's a way in which, as we see here, 
man, we can use that in a sinful way. We can use it basically to pull the covers up over our heads and say, I don't want to deal with these problems. I think maybe that's part of what's going on here. The disciples are worried. They don't know what to do. They're not sure what's going on. But Jesus has told them what they should do in this moment. He's saying, guys, man, we're about to go through some hard things. You're about to go through some hard things. And the only thing that you can do right now that will strengthen you is prayer. And yet, they're sleeping. Here's the deal. We have to marshal all of our energy, all of our wakefulness to be prepared for the moment that God is putting into our lives. To ask God to help us, to ask God to save us, to ask God to persevere us through these things. Because again, here's the deal. Man, I recognize that I have been sleeping in the garden for huge chunks of my life. Right? I have been oblivious to the dangers and the temptations that were all around me because I figured, ah, things are fine. I'm okay. I can get through these things. Uh, I'm strong enough. I've got my, my, my thing together enough. I've, I, you know, even though the war is raging around me in our hearts, in our marriages, in our families, in our churches, in our communities, in our country. And all the while, I am often saying, well, this looks like a cozy spot over here. I think I'm just going to lean up against this thing and, and take a rest. But Jesus, as we say often, because we keep on coming back to passages like this, Jesus is saying, wake up. You don't have time to sleep. You need to be praying. Because that is going to be the way that you access the protection you need for the trial that is coming. You are not prepared for what is coming. And notice what happens in the passage, because we talked about this out of order with with, um, Peter. They don't pray, right? They go to sleep. They sleep through this time that they're praying, and guess what happens? Every single one of them fall away. When the moment of temptation, when the moment of trial comes, when the moment to stand with Christ or to run comes, they all run. They all demonstrate that in the moment of decision, they weren't ready. Their hearts weren't prepared. They didn't have the strength to stand the way they were supposed to stand. And all I can think is that, well, Jesus told you. He told you, and it's coming, guys. The temptation is real, and it is on deck, and the only thing that's going to protect you from it is prayer. And they don't, and they succumb to the fear. So again, man, all we have to do is look around us. And I know that every single one of us has friends in, in, in situations like this to see the casualties of this warfare that we're talking about all around us, right? We see people who have walked away from Christ, who have walked away from church, who have been killed functionally in this spiritual battle that we're talking about. You know them. They're your family. They're your friends. Now, on one side, that's not a reason to despair, Because we happen to have a Savior who's been resurrected from the dead. And so when we have spiritual casualties in in the Christian faith, uh, there's not we're not without hope, right? Those people can fall away and die, it seems, in the faith, and yet there can be a resurrection that happens where they return to Christ and are reconciled and are and are brought back into the fold. And so we don't when we see people dying in the war of, of this spiritual warfare, um, we don't lose hope. 
But again, I wonder how many times it is for lack of prayer that people have succumbed to these things. As we said last week, we don't trust in ourselves. We're not up to the task. We don't trust in our own strength. We trust in the strength that is provided for us by God through prayer. We hold on to that. That is our hope. That is our perseverance. If it is not Christ that provides these things, um, then we're in a lot of trouble. And so that is the warning that he gives. I think he's giving it to the disciples. I think he's giving it to us today. Again, man, I feel like we probably go through most of our lives thinking things are fine. And I think I've got this. Every once in a while, a serious situation pops up and we go, yeah, I should pray about this a little more because I'm, I'm concerned about this one thing or this one person or this one issue. But the reality is, is it is every single moment there are these things pressing in on us. And it is only by God's grace that we have not succumbed to them yet. And so we need to be in, in consistent and constant prayer, um, that God would keep, lead us out of temptation, that he would lead us away from temptation and into faithfulness. So what I want to do is, is go to the Lord in prayer right now and pray to that very end, um, that we would ask God that he would move and work in such a way, um, that we would be removed from temptation. Um, I don't want to go through things the hard way. Okay. Um, we know that sometimes that's the way that it seems like sometimes we have to learn lessons, but I don't want that to be the case. I want to learn in a way that is faithful uh, and consistent and that Christ would form and shape me, not by the hammer of my foolishness, um, but by the gentle molding of his faithfulness. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to do that. Ask us to shape um, us as a, as individuals, as a church family to protect us from those things, um, to protect us from all the many temptations that are out there and the things that the world calls us to. Let's pray. Father God, how flippant, how naive, how um, cavalier I have been when it comes to the temptations that are all around me, calling me away from Jesus Christ. God, that I have not sought you in prayer um, that I have not sought you uh, for protection, God, that I have not sought you for wisdom. At so many places in my life where I have presumed upon your grace and presumed upon your protection and presumed upon your goodness, but not out of a trust and faithfulness, per se, um, but God, out of a presumption. 
um, just assuming that things would go well, um, even when I have not obeyed, even when I have not prayed to avoid those temptations uh, that you place in our lives. God, we know that, um, God, you do protect, you do watch over. God, you don't lead us into temptation. Um, you don't um, do things uh, and, and, and set up stumbling blocks to try to mess your people up. God, we know that it is Satan and the world and our own hearts and flesh that are drawing us away from Jesus Christ. And yet we know that through prayer, um, just as your word says, lead us not into temptation. Um, we know that there are, there are ways that, that we can stumble and, and lose our way and lose our path and find ourselves in temptation. God, we pray that through these prayers that you would steer us in different directions. God, that we would not even have to, um, question or wonder or deal with these things because we have sought you in prayer and you have guided us a better way around. Help us to do that. God, help us to be consistent and always recognizing the way a good soldier would, um, always recognizing the dangers that are around us, the, the necessity of preparedness, the necessity of watchfulness, um, to not let our guards down um, and allow sin and temptation into our lives. God, help us to do that. Um, help us to be faithful when it comes to prayer in those ways. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. I fear my faith will be when the tempter will be fast. I could never keep my life's fearful for my love is over. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Oh, my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. He says, "Are his eyes eyes precious in his sight? He will not let my soul be cursed. His promises shall last. God by him at such
He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Oh, my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. My people, This has been Amen. Good to see you tonight. Glad you're here. Um, uh, next week, uh, we're going to be continuing in, in the Gospel of Luke. Um, but James uh, is going to come and share with us next week. And so he's going to be preaching for us. And so um, uh, hopefully that'll be the case. Um, I will, me and, me and Cheeto are going to be going out of town. We're going to be going down to Mobile to, to see my dad and, and my brother. We're going to be trying to be back here that night, but, but Cody, I think is going to be here. He's supposed to be here uh, to lead in worship, um, on, on Sunday. And then, and then, uh, James is going to, uh, uh, preach for us. So, um, hope you'll come and, and be with us next Sunday, uh, and encourage them and, as we continue in the gospel of Luke. Um, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.